Okay, we're doing something a little different today. This is not a live on Sunday in the sanctuary sermon. This is a re-recorded sermon. Me in my office with my microphone and no one else. We lost the original audio for this sermon due to technical issues, and I wanted to include it in the podcast and the website because a few folks have asked me about it, and it really fits with the other sermons in the series. They're really of a piece. So uh, forgive me if the audio quality is a little different. Hopefully it's a little better. And if uh, my voice, not my literal voice, which is still struggling, my metaphorical voice is a little different because it's it's a different sort of thing to preach to a microphone instead of to a live group of listeners. That said, I am going to pray. I invite you to pray with me if you're listening to this at a different time when I'm recording it. I think prayer can encompass that. So please pray with me. Father, I do pray that this strange, different sort of sermon would be an encounter with you, that I would be able to surrender to your spirit, be led by you, be inspired to speak words of truth and goodness, and that those who listen will be blessed and even changed in encountering you in that truth and goodness. We pray together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our scripture passage for today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. I'll read it aloud. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us, through these things, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust, and may become participants of the divine nature. Let's review what we're doing this Advent season. We said last week, first week of Advent, that Advent is traditionally a season about the second coming, not the first, not preparing for Christmas, about looking forward even further, waiting, waiting as Scripture sends us off in its last verses to do, waiting for Jesus to come back. And our focus on that this year is in thinking more broadly, imagining, more expansively, feeling more deeply, letting God engage us at the heart, mind, gut, imagination level of how big what he's going to do for us is, at the majesty and the glory of God, at the promises that are so much greater than we could ever even hope for. We want to let God blow our minds. And that's the reason we decided this season to switch the order of the worship singing and the sermon, because the sermon's not going to be as formed, as doctrinally or teaching-oriented. It's going to be just wrestling with Scripture in an imaginative way to lead us, to lead us to a place where even if we can't necessarily articulate new truths about God, 
We've encountered them. We've felt them. We've experienced them. We are ready with bigger hearts to sing our praise to him. Last week, we started with the restoration of all things. Curious phrase that Peter uses in his sermon in Acts 3. That's from Acts 3.21. And we just we just marveled at what all things might include. We looked at our passage, Romans 8, 18 through 25, where it says creation is waiting, groaning, longing to be set free from its bondage to decay. And we said, look, in that passage, creation is distinguished from children of God. From us, it seems to be something like animals and and, and plants and, and the rest of non-human creation. And once we did, went down that road, we looked back at Genesis 1.31 where God says, everything that he made, all of it, was very good. And we looked at passages like Ephesians 1.10 where it talks about all things things in heaven and things on earth being gathered up in him. We confess that we can never understand the scope of what those all things, that universe-wide all things might mean. This week, we're going to do another R. I think I told you last week I'm, I'm averse to doing the sort of standard preacher's tactic of, you know, alliteration, three C's, four G's, but but we are going to do this season four R's. The first was restoration. The second is renewal. What do I mean by renewal today? Well, let's, let's turn to a few clues from Scripture, all from Paul, where he uses his language. He talks about our inner nature being renewed day by day. That's in 2 Corinthians 4. And he talks in Romans 12 about our minds being renewed so that we're transformed. We're less like the world. We're better able to discern God's will. Similarly, in Ephesians, Paul talks about our minds being renewed because we're putting behind the lusts and corruptions of our old self. We're putting on the holiness and righteousness of the new self. And Colossians 3 talks about us being renewed according to the likeness of God, the image of our creator. So renewal, renewal today is something like that way in which we're being transformed, transfigured, changed, made more like him, made in his likeness, made more holy and righteous. It's what different Christian traditions have called sanctification, what the Methodists and John Wesley called perfection, that slow, gradual process of being changed to be more like Jesus. Now, if this is our topic, you should be a little surprised that I'm including it in this year's Advent, because it it doesn't really, on the face of it, seem to fit. It's strange. 
in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, we said we're going to talk about the bigness of God and what God wants to do for our world at the end of time. But, but renewal in this sense, sanctification, seems to be more about us, not God. That's strange. And also, it, it, it doesn't seem to really be about blowing our minds about how big God and his promises and his works are and will be. It's more about what? Ethics, morality, how we, how we act, our character, our nature. I want to humbly suggest to you that it's because of the seeming strangeness of this renewal that we need to talk about. It's exactly why we need to talk about it. Because what God has planned for us is as mind-blowing as what we talked about last week. And here's, here's the one sentence I want you to remember. If you remember nothing else, remember this. God wants more for us than we could ever want for ourselves. God wants more for us than we could ever want for ourselves. Let's start here. Let's, let's claim this. This renewal, this renewal, it may seem to be about us. It may seem to be about ethics, but, but it's God's work. It's God's own work, and it's God's miraculous work. This sort of renewal, this isn't about self-improvement. This is about coming into contact with God's holiness, his life-giving, grace-filled resurrection work, and being changed as a result of that. It's new creation. By a creator, we are not the creator. We submit to our creator. Like we did last week, I'm just going to read some scriptures. I want you to let these just wash over you. Don't try to parse them and understand them in great detail so that you can articulate a doctrine. Just let them wash over you. This, brothers and sisters, is the way the Bible envisions the miraculous work of renewal. Philippians 1.6 Paul writes, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying this isn't our work. This is God's work that he's going to do, that he's going to finish. Now, we have to participate in that. We have to join in that. We have to be a part of that. We do have agency. We'll talk about that. But, but I just want to highlight, this is, this is fundamentally, primarily God's work. Titus 3.5, we read that he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work. This is God's work. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Yes, controversial passage. Yes, difficult passage. But we don't, we don't need to try to dig into the vision for husbands and wives today. Listen to the part about Christ and his church here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Brothers and sisters, that's, 
That's Christ's work. That's the Spirit's work. That's God's work. Presenting us holy and blameless, changing us, transforming us, making us holy. And of course, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, So if anyone in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. I said a moment ago, this is a miracle. I mean that. I'm not trying to exaggerate. It's not a turn of phrase. I've seen in my own life with the way that my small choices often become habits and they sort of calcify and they become seemingly unbreakable, seemingly unchangeable. I've seen that God's change is about as profound and and, and supernatural as anything there is. There's nothing natural about breaking through our hardened habits and changing us. Think about our world today. I mean, I've shared this before. I've, I've started to pray at this time of what? Crisis. Started to pray against falsehood. Capital F. As a power, as a principality, I've used that language, and I've felt increasingly comfortable, increasingly convicted doing so. Why? Because the powers that stand against God of deceit, deception, falsehood are work so strongly, it seems, in our society that the people being changed genuinely having their minds change their hearts and characters and dispositions and orientations towards the world, towards their sin changed, that's a miracle. It is, it is no less miraculous than any sort of physical healing we encounter in Scripture or life. Now, I said a moment ago, look, this miracle, it's God. It's God's work in spirit, but we, we are exhorted to partner in it, to participate in it, to submit and surrender to God's work in it and join Him. I think all the passage, or most of them, that I read a moment ago, if I'd kept reading beyond what I quoted, they would, they would talk in this way. And our passage for today, from 2 Peter 1, this phrase that we're focusing on, partaker of the divine nature, that, that Greek word actually means something like sharer, sharing in. We have to share it with the one who wants to share it with us. Second last thing I want to say today, besides it being God's work, God's miracle, we've already started to talk about this. We've started to talk in this way. The second claim is this renewal is extraordinary. It's beyond anything we typically hope for. God wants more. Truly, truly, He wants more and will do more for us than we ever hope or expect He will. I've got some more texts, and again, I just I want you to close your eyes. I want you to soak these up. Listen to what God wants from you. Listen to what God wants to do in you and will do in you if you let Him. I'm going to reread the second verse of our passage today, 2 Peter 1, 4. Thus, he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises, 
so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. 1 John 3, 2 says something similar from a different perspective. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. We will be like him. We will participate in his nature so much that we will be like him. We can say more. We can be more specific what that means. Scripture tells us the book of Jude, the end of the book of Jude. Poor neglected Jude. I love the book of Jude. Here's Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand, listen to this, listen to this, without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Matthew 5.48, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it more simply. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But, but surely he can't, he can't mean that literally, right? He can't mean that we're meant to be perfect like God is perfect. <sighs> yeah, but, but, but he does mean that. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul writes, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. What does God want to do? What will God do if we let him? He wants to make us participate in himself, in his very nature, so that we will be like him. We will be without blemish, so that we can stand before him rejoicing. We will be perfect. Our holiness will be perfect. That my friends, is the language of Scripture. Those are the promises. That's our hope. When early Christians in the first few centuries wrestled with texts like this, you know what they called it? You know, you know what the doctrine that we're talking about came to be called? Their Greek word was theosis. Theosis. Theo, from which we get theology. God. Sis, in this case, just, just makes it a noun that, that means something like becoming or, or, or in the nature of. This, this became translated and still is into English as deification, being made into a god. Early Christians, when they talked like this, here's the kind of things they said, and this, this was repeated often. Often, this is not heretical Christianity. This is Orthodox Christianity. It survives to this day, and in some traditions, like Orthodox capital O, Christianity, these are staples. These are centerpieces of the way that Christians talk. Irenaeus, early church father, very early, Irenaeus said, the Son of God became Son of Man so that man might become Son of God. 
more starkly, in the same vein, but even more starkly, even more controversially, even more, what, unsettlingly, Athanasius said, God made himself man, that man might become God. That should make you uncomfortable, I think. It makes me uncomfortable. Is that heresy? You've got to understand, what they're trying to do is wrestle deeply with the bigness of the hope that God is going to work in us in such a way that he will make our holiness perfect so that we can be like him. It's, it's the logic of Scripture. It's the logic of Revelation 21-22 that says, nothing accursed will be found there. And it makes sense, right? I mean, it's the logic that says, how could something sinful stand in the presence of God to see God with open eyes as he is and appreciate him <sighs> requires deep holiness even perfection. This is not heresy. Not if we understand it, not if we ground it in Scripture and understand what it means, what God's trying to do. I mean, this is, friends, this is C.S. Lewis. He said, God wants to make us little Christs. Little Christs. It's God's goal. I've got to read you this quotation from Mere Christianity. This is beautiful. Lewis gets this. Lewis understands that he's wrestled with these texts. He writes, make no mistake, Jesus says. If you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can and will do but I will not do anything less. It's the logic of Scripture. That's the hope of renewal. It's the Christian hope. It is our hope. It is a hope we need to remind ourselves of. My favorite preacher of all time. Heard him preach twice in person. Brilliant, brilliant preacher. Tony Campolo. Some of you may have heard of him, may have heard him speak. Tony Campolo got this. He gets this. He talks in this way. Listen to one of his sermons the other day, just the other day this week, and he, he puts it this way. He envisions Jesus presenting him before the Father, and he says, Father, I want you to meet my friend Tony, the perfect one. <laughs> and then Tony Campolo goes on to say, I hope my wife is there. It's beautiful. It's Jesus' desire is to present us perfect to God, to his Father. This should blow our minds no less than restoration. Blow our minds. What is it? This means, I don't, I don't even know that we could ever plumb the depths of what this means. I mean, it means something like God wants to and is able 
to deal with us, to reform, renew, and change us at the level of, of, of our desires and our inclinations and our nature and our character, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we yearn, the way we hope. God can get in at that level. Change us that fundamentally. Here's, here's how I think of it, okay? Here's how I think of it. I've got, a, I've got one more passage. I think just one more passage to read you today. Listen carefully to this. This is another passage from Paul. It's Colossians 1, 21 through the first part of 23. He says, And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established, steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. That phrase in there, holy and blameless. I think what we have to understand is that there's a distinction there. That's two things, two different things. That's not a repetition of one idea or concept. Holy means one thing, blameless another. Blameless means something like without blemish, without spot, without sin, nothing accursed. That's blameless. Holiness means something different. It means something more. I preached a sermon, gosh, I think about a year ago. I think, called What is Holiness? What is holiness? And I said, and I felt really good about this. I still do. I said, holiness is a shining face. Holiness is Moses' shining face when he comes out of the tent and he has to put on the veil after he's talked with God and his face is beaming. Why? Because holiness is what makes God, God. The only way to get it, the only way to become holy is to have God rub off on you. You can't make yourself holy. God rubs off on you. I remember saying, look, here's the thing. Holy is not blameless. It's not just without sin because that makes no sense of the fact that there are zones of increasing holiness as you get in the temple. There's the temple and then you go in and you reach a point where it's holy and then you keep going. You keep going behind the curtain where the ark was, where God's presence and glory and Shekinah was. And that was what? The holy of holies, the most holiness place. If holy just means without sin, that doesn't make any sense. But if holy means something like God's own self and nature, that as we get closer to it, we feel it, desire it, see it, have it work on us more, that's holiness. Here's what holiness means to me. Holiness means something like having my mind become like Jesus' mind. Having my nature become like Jesus's nature. See, see, Paul writes in the second chapter of Philippians about having the same mind that Jesus did when he emptied himself. Having the same mind. And he describes what that mind is and what, what folks have said is, is maybe an early hymn that Christians sang about Jesus emptying himself on the cross, not seeking to grasp his equality with God, but becoming a slave. And Paul writes, this is, is him regarding 
others as better than himself. That's Jesus. I think of it this way. We talked about this. I've said this before. Remember Utah? Utah who worshiped with us for a while before he moved and and he had lost his eyesight in recent years and he was blind. And I was struggling one night in Bible study with that strange, strange passage in Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. And it seems on the face of it that Lazarus gets to enjoy good things in Jesus's presence. What? Just because he had a hard life? Just because he had a life struck by poverty and the rich man, what, is banished from the presence of God just because he enjoyed comfort and that didn't seem right and I didn't get it? And Quincy explained it to me. She had an insight, which I think is exactly right. She said, Zach, don't you, don't you think that that's about something like when we get to that new Jerusalem, aren't you going to want someone like you taught, someone who is blind in this world in this life, someone like you taught to see God's glory first before you do. Don't you want him to see it first? I said, yeah, that's Jesus. That's Jesus's heart. That's putting others more better ahead of myself, regarding others as better than myself. We've said this, it's, it's David. David, who never learned to read in this life, who worked so hard to learn to read and died without ever learning to read. Don't I want David to be the reader of Scripture before the throne of God more than I want that for myself? Absolutely. We think this way at rare times, in rare circumstances like what I've given you, and we think this way sometimes at our best moment for our biological kids. But what if, what if we were so full the Spirit of Jesus, that we lived in that sort of holiness, that that's who we were. What if God wants us to be that perfect? All right, I've gone on long enough, but I have to say one more thing. I have to use a math term. I've checked this with my, my math consultants, an asymptote, an asymptote. It's, it's what a line that approaches an axis, but always gets closer and never quite touches. It infinitely gets closer to that axis. The perfection that God is working in us if we let him is asymptotic. It's like an asymptote. That's the beautiful, mysterious paradox that should blow our mind about this perfection. Here's what I mean. John Wesley, John Wesley was asked, can those who are perfect grow in grace? Now think about that question. The answer, the answer should be no. Because if you're perfect, there's no room for improvement. Can those who are perfect grow in grace? Wesley, who deeply, deeply appreciated what God's doing in us to perfect us, said, undoubtedly they can. And that, not only while they are in the body, but to all eternity. We are perfect and being made more perfect as we become more and more and more and more like God. Here's a vision of eternity called the beatific vision. We'll talk about this more another week. As we stare at the beauty and glory of who God is and we enjoy him more and more, we become changed just a little bit more in our nature and our character and who we are to become more like him just by seeing that glory and that perfection. 
And then we look back at him and we see him more and we become changed more and we see him more and we love him more and we appreciate him more. And that changes us more like an asymptote forever. Let's end here. God wants more from us than we ever want for ourselves. I ended last week's sermon by saying he's the God of every atom. I think even that's too small because atoms, in that sense, the sense I meant it then was they're already in existence. God, God's bigger than that. God's the God of all possibilities, all hypotheticals. God is the God of all possible ways that you could turn out. All possible natures. He wants to work all things for good to make you into that one human he envisioned you to be when he created you. Let's praise him with that in mind. Amen.